Hello and welcome back to Everyday Anarchism, the show that finds anarchism, mutual aid, cooperation, non-domination in your everyday life. I am your host, Graham Colbertson. This is a quick intro because I just want to say we have Kathy O'Neill, Occupy Wall Street veteran, legendary advocate for people who have been misled or demeaned by the corporate and governmental systems which chew up and spit out so many Americans and people all over the world. Kathy has a new book called The Shame Machine, which I highly recommend. After the music, our conversation. Hello. Hi. <laughs> Welcome. Welcome Thank to you. Everyday Anarchism. It is a pleasure to have you here. Um, for those of you who don't here. know Kathy's work, she wrote uh, a really amazing book called Weapons of Math Destruction. And yes, you heard that right. It's math destruction, which is really about all the way that algorithms, math can be weaponized um, against us, against those of us who don't know math very well, and even against those who do know math well. It goes into this black box and out, out of that black box comes the, the destruction of society and, and humans. Does that sound, is that a fair description, Kathy? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, so weapons, yeah, I mean, I don't know, sorry. Could you say the question again? <laughs> <laughs> I just said um, the book is about how math can be, can be weaponized um, by, uh -huh. by corporations and various other metrical metrical structures. I mean, what you start. Yeah, I, I, I would say it this way. I would say like m m people's trust in math is used mm. against them. People's trust and and an intimidation of math, you know, um, so people people are are somehow expected to treat math almost like they would treat God. You know, they're yes. supposed to be both fearful and trusting like benevolent, but afraid, you know, that's, that's what the God is supposed to be like. And, uh, and the, the thing about it is it's, it's actually quite useful as a mechanism to get people to stop talking. Um, so that's why, that's why we weaponize math. We weaponize science in general to say like, Oh, you don't, you're not a PhD in science. You don't, you don't have the right to ask questions because you aren't smart enough. Yes, it is, absolutely. of course, of course, a, a form of shaming. So <laughs> I thought about that a lot. Uh, I thought about that a lot. Yeah, um, no, I think that's absolutely right. And something that's been happening all over the world, you discuss it a lot in your new book, um, The Shame Machine, but this way that um, what, what the, the power that math had five years ago, that was like, oh, you have to be fired because you're a bad teacher because these metrics say so, or, you know, you have to go to jail for 10 more years because you're definitely gonna commit another crime because I mean, the math says so. Uh, we don't care what you think or feel, just the math says so. Science is occupying that new, that new position um, in this sense of like, this is what the science says, trust the science and that's the end of the story. And that there are ways that that makes sense and seems like it can be helpful. But you know, if you talk to actual working scientists, that's not how, that's not how science works and it's this tricky tricky problem i would say for us globally uh, of how do we have science without handing it over all power well i would go further i'd say like we have we have seen what this kind of over 
abuse of people's trust if they have or had any of science sort of like a coercive methods to get people to to do stuff because the science says so um people are naturally suspicious of this and then when we actually have something that science does say (laughs) you know like vaccines save lives we're surprised that people are wary um it's you know it doesn't surprise me because it's like well we've been you know hitting people over the head with pseudoscience um so why should they trust it it's like the boy who cried wolf basically yeah i definitely believe you know um people will say all the time they're not a conspiracy theorist and they don't believe in conspiracies and my response to that is i mean i don't really believe in any hidden conspiracies but there definitely is a is a conspiracy among elites in America to remove decision making from the average person. And when you put it that way, you, you sound sort of like you're going towards U- Unabomber territory. One of my students said, Dr. Corbettson, you sound like the Unabomber. But I just meant like, no, like the idea is the people at Harvard know what's going on. And they've set up these tests that tell you who, if you can get into Harvard, and then if you, you know, get into Harvard, you can eventually become part of this elite and run the country. And this sounds like crazy, crazy conspiracy theorizing. But in fact, it's uh, on the front page of every newspaper and, and magazine. I know this is a, uh, a conspiratorial way of framing it, but having been in the belly of that beast for 15 years, it, it, it rings more or less true to me. And so when those people say, it's desperately important that you get vaccines. Those are the same people who said it's desperately important that the banks get bailed out and you not get bailed out on your mortgage. So of course right. they don't they don't trust those people. Yeah, yeah. I totally agree with you. Um, and having also been inside this belly, you know, it's like <laughs> it's it is what the whole structure of meritocracy is set up to do is to make these folks feel like, well, of course we run the country. We are, we are the best. We yes. are, we perform the best and it's our right. And it's our, in fact, our responsibility and our entitlement to do so. So it's, but it's because of a good reason, which is that we're the best, you know what I mean? So it's yes. like, it's a circular reasoning of power elites, but it's not a really a conspiracy if it's true. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah like, like, it's just, <laughs> conspiracies are supposed to be like made up right like this is is not really a conspiracy like just look around yeah but if someone the way that i the way in which i call it conspiracies if someone says did you know there's actually a ruling elite in this country that use hidden processes to choose their successors and then demand that we do what they say my response is it's not hidden that's not hidden (laughs) to your point like it's the sat it's the you know the prep school system it's like there's a reason we keep on hearing about cheating, um, you know, to get into college because it's the most obvious thing in the world. Like I was just sent um, a blog post by a friend of mine about like some our, our mutual friends takedown of the of the of Columbia's um, U.S. News and World Report ranking gaming the way they yeah. game that 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 ranking list of the best colleges. This is a very, very visible, very, very serious game that we're that that the elite colleges are are engaged in. I don't think there's anything secret about it. Yeah. Okay. You're right. It's not. It's not secret, but it is not widely understood. Per, perhaps does that make sense? Well, I you know it's 
let me put it this way. Like it's as understood as, as it could be um, while people are constantly being distracted by shame. I mean, yes. this is kind of why I wrote the book of the shame machine, because the point is that the shame is a huge distraction, right? Sh- shame is, is a way of sort of blaming the victims of a certain system. And we blame the victims. And then we say, you're too dumb to be a, a winner, you know, and that's, that's the situation for meritocracy shame. Like you're too dumb. Sorry. You're so dumb. Like the people, smart people over here win because you're so dumb. And, and instead of being like, wait, that's a fake rigged fucking system. Most people are just like, Oh man, I must, I must be dumb. Right. right? Like, like it, it works. Shame works. It is like, it is um, in, in my opinion, like the power behind why my first book made sense right what right. weapons of math destruction why do algorithms intimidate why do we give them so much power why do we assume that they're perfect because because of math shame because of this very very useful mechanism where people don't ask questions when they feel intimidated um and that's a distraction it's not it's it, it so in, in in some sense it is not really hidden this these things but it is but it is hard to um, unwrap because we are constantly be distracted by feeling feelings of personal failure. So we don't think of it as a system. We think of it as our personal failure that we, we should consider. And when you, and when you question it, you are told that you're questioning it because you don't understand the math essentially. Exactly. Uh Or yes, or you're not, you don't, you just don't have it. You don't, you're not, you don't have a, you're not a math person or you're, you know what I mean? Like you don't have it. You don't have, you're not a Harvard person. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. I actually had James Fallows on the show a couple of weeks ago and he promised to come back and explain the, uh, his attempt when he was briefly the editor of us news and world reports to prevent the gaming of that system. And that was the end of his time at at us news and world reports. This was uh, maybe almost 40 years ago, but no one was, no one was having it. His idea that he was like, oh, oh, I'll just make this less corrupt. They were like, thank you, James. Well, you know, here's the golden parachute. We'll take it from Goodbye. here. We'll yeah. take it from here. Um, and, you know, like to that very point, like, do you think the SATs are gameable? Yes. That, that's why we have the tutoring industry um, and the test prep industry. And like, they would never want to actually develop a test that is not gameable because then they would lose their most lucrative part of their industry, which is test prep. They want the gaming is the business. <laughs> that's, that's I, I could not agree more. Speaking as someone who taught elite students in both college and high school and has taught test prep. I mean, the, the test prep company that I worked at, the guy said like, you know, we, we want this to be a good job for you. You know, we want it to be something that's fun for high IQ people to do. And, you know, it, it was kind of fun, but it's not in retrospect, my, my ability to so easily get, I mean, the, there was basically no job application for that one. I sent my test scores in and they were like, congratulations. Now that time I've been in the classroom for five years, I was well qualified, but it didn't really matter. It was just, you got the numbers. Mm. Um, mm. To go back to shame and test prep, the one thing I want to add, and then I want to get deeper into the, the shame industry itself, because I've been waiting for a book like this to be written, Kathy. So I'm, I'm very excited about it. And I'll tell you oh, why. Thank you. Um, oh, no, we've needed, we've needed this book or a book like this for a long time. The best I have found was the, the John Ronson book. So you've been publicly shamed, but I think yes. this one does. That's a great book. It's a great book, but it is, it is a great book. 
Excuse me. So um, when you talk about test prep, the shame perpetuates generationally because what the losers are supposed to do as well as the winners is devote all their resources to getting their kids into the right school with the right teachers, with the right test scores. And so these people who have completely beaten the shame game and are Fortune 500 CEO or whatever, unless they're actual billionaires, they're up all night ashamed of their children, worried that their children will not get a high enough SAT score because they can, again, without short of hundreds of millions of dollars, they cannot bequeath this status. So even the people who have attained it, the billionaires, it's different, but even the people who have attained it and merely own $10 million, they have to convert one or two of that $10 million into an elite education. Otherwise their kids are doomed. And if the kids don't want it, or if it just doesn't take, then the shame, the shame perpetuates. And even the winners end up ashamed of their children and the children end up ashamed of themselves. There's no way out of it. I don't think it, it's, it's. Yeah. Forever. And I, I, I'm going to agree with you and add to that pile, but I want to preface that um, but first by mentioning that this is in the context where all of those beliefs are actually wrong. They're actually wrong. Um, Like there's plenty of studies that show that like kids that are come off from, come from well, well well-off families don't really benefit all that much from an elite education. Mm -hmm. They're going to do fine. They're just going to do fine. Mm -hmm. Um, The kids that benefit from a, elite education are the poorest, you know, 20%. When they get into a good college, their, their destinies really change. Mm-hmm. The kids that are in the, you know, top 40% are going to be in the top 40% very likely. The mo- that's the, what the mobility looks like. Right. Um, they don't, you know, as long as they go to college, um, it doesn't have to be elite. So this is just wrong headed. Yeah. But the reason it is propagated is exactly to your point that it's propagated not by rational thought and or like a cost benefit analysis. It's propagated by shame. It's propagated by this eternal anxiety about um, worthiness. And that's what shame is. I mean, just to, to back up a little bit, like being ashamed of yourself meaning is mean, means you're, you feel unworthy, you feel unlovable. And it, it is a threat to your existential sense of self. Like it disintegrates your sense of self in in reality. So you really want to avoid shame. Shame is something that is so <laughs> awful. Um, it feels so bad, and it 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 really it, it sort of uh, it has a bunch of major reactions re- related to it. Like if you feel shame, you suddenly you can't think straight. You know, you might even feel sick to your stomach. It's so it's so dreadful that you'll do kind of anything to avoid it and to and to like have your loved ones avoid it. And so we have this system, as you point out, where it's not just on our own behalves; it's also on the behalf of our kids. But of course, we are set up in this society to also think of our kids as extensions of ourselves. So if our kids are successful, then we must, in retroact, you know, retrospect, be also successful, et cetera, et cetera. But it's. But to, to the larger point is that like shame is the driving force and power of this entire gamed system. And just if you think about all the wasted hours of bullshit high school activities Ugh. of how much pain it is to write those essays nowadays, like I interviewed, um, you know, all, all these high school girls um, about like shame. I really expected them to talk about their bodies and being slut shamed or body shamed. They wanted to talk about college essays. Mm -hmm. 
and that's true for the, the, the girls in the sort of very upper class prep school I went to, as well as the girls in like the very, very poor um, inner city school in downtown Brooklyn as well. And they, all 10 of them, five in each school, they, they all focused on shame around the college application mm. process. One of them said it most beautifully. She said like, we have to, um, it's, it's a, supposed to be a sort of holistic view on who we are as humans. We have to prove ourselves, but it is, it is completely artificial. We feel completely like we have to build a, build a picture of who we are that is not at all true. And so it's inauthentic. It's like authenticness in a completely inauthentic sense, and it just makes us feel like constantly questioning ourselves and the process that we find ourselves in. And I really was like, "Wow, that's beautifully articulated." And also, like these kids did nothing to ask for this, mm-hmm. right? But their parents are putting so much pressure on them because, and they're putting so much pressure on themselves because that is the whole purpose of prep schools. Um, and, and likewise, the kids that were in the, in the, in the impoverished s- system realized that this, this was high stakes. This is their one opportunity to get out, out of poverty, but they, uh, their parents, n- none of their parents went to college. Um, from their perspective, the shame of the college essay was, why do I have to explain the most shameful thing that's ever happened to me? Mm-hmm. Why is that? That is what I'm what I need to talk about in order to get into college. Cause I need to, somebody needs to take pity on me. And that's a humiliating and shameful experience in its, in its own right. It's a different kind of shame, but also extremely hard to listen to when you're talking about these beautiful young women who just like are just trying their best. They have to go through this kind of thing where they, this process of like exposing their souls as, as far as they're concerned to these completely indifferent um you know bureaucracies that are themselves just like basically covering their ass in a bunch of different crappy ways it's awful yeah it is it it is absolutely awful i i mean and then as you say you can't really opt out of it because that's how the resources are are allocated unless you unless you have the resources already unless you're in one of the topper income upper income brackets i mean so i i opted out of it I quit my job, um, but I'm a full-time parent and my wife has a good job. So I, I opted out of it from a, from quite admittedly a place of, of privilege. Um, and actually I loved when I got to the part of your book where you said the inspiration for this book was coming off the work of weapons of math destruction, meeting a teacher who had been chained by this improvement plan, because that's that's what happened to me. An improvement plan was initiated against me, not because of math, but because I had told the students that I did not think the uh, school was prioritizing their mental health during the pandemic. And I was going to put mental health over academic achievement. And the school came down to me like a ton of bricks. And I knew they were completely wrong. I told everyone, everyone in my life said they were wrong. Students wanted to go to the newspapers and fight for me. I ended up eventually just quitting, but also despite knowing they were completely wrong, having been this creature of the meritocracy, having won and got my PhD and gotten this job that was a high school job, but a very prestigious job. When the institution said to me, no, you are wrong and bad. Sick to my stomach was an understatement. I had nausea so bad that I could not sleep for months, all because these stupid bureaucrats were mad at me for prioritizing mental health over 
test scores, which I knew was right. the right thing to do. Yes, but I was yes. So in that system of, of shit. I mean, I still feel it, even as I'm making this podcast, which yeah. I love doing. I wake up and think, God, Graham, you are a loser. You just sit around all day with a three-year-old. You are the lowest of the low. And caring for children is not the lowest of the low, but it is yeah. inside me, Kathy. And it's, yeah. if there's anything I can do to break anyone else out of it, I will try. But it's such a privilege to break, to break out of it that it, it can seem like a, like a lost cause. It certainly did for a lot of my students. They're like, yeah, you're right. This is bad. I want to break out of this. Now, can you write me a letter of recommendation to MIT? Because I have to get into MIT. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, I'm really sorry to hear about your story. Um, and and second of all, I have bad news, as you already know, because you've read my book. Um, my book does not explain how to get rid of shame, but it does talk about stages of shame. If you don't mind, I'm, I'm just going to mention them. The first one, as you know, is the actual just experience of sitting in shame, which is just a dreadful experience. The second, which and, I, and my experience being a fat kid, you know, being fat shamed and stuff like that from from childhood was like was a large part of my early experience of shame, not the only part. Um, but I did use that as the example um, to to explain the sort of stages of shame. The second shame stage is denial. Essentially, like we are it's like shame shame is the feeling of being worthless, but we have another part of our, our ourselves, which is like, no, I'm a good person. So we are immediately cast into this terrible place of sort of cognitive dissonance. It's just a mm -hmm. very, very painful conflict inside of our ourselves that we essentially learn how to suppress. And that's where, that's the second stage where we're just like, we're not thinking about this. For me, that looked like I'm not looking at my, myself in the mirror. Mm -hmm. I'm not ever going to try to get a boyfriend you know they're just like there's these things that are sort of outside my field of vision because i simply don't let my eyes wander over there that's kind of the second stage of shame it's it's the it's very precarious you can be triggered by something a mm. comment or accidentally seeing yourself in the mirror or whatever it is <laughs> it's very very you know precarious and like so you can get triggered back into the first stage so this cycles it's not just a monotonically increasing function and and honestly it's often stops there like people could just get knocked between the first and second stage of denial and, and pain but then sometimes you can get it to the third and fourth stage. And, and briefly, that, that just means like reckoning, like just be like, okay, I felt bad about this. This is what actually happened. These are the facts on the ground. You know, for me, that was like, I tried dieting 25 times. Like I ended up getting myself probably um, insulin resistant because of the weird shit I was doing to my body and like ended up gaining more weight. And it actually doesn't work for me. And I looked around, it doesn't work for other people. Diets don't work. And wait a second, why am I being... Why am I being blamed for obesity when we have an obesity epidemic that no one understands and diets don't work for that either? That's reckoning. That's when you're like, this is happening to me and I understand the facts and I can look at them straight in the face. And that's where you are already, my friend. And that's a good sign. <laughs> the fourth sign is when you're like, the fourth stage is from, you know, I just made these up, but the point is that they do seem to be progressive. Um, is like, yeah, I not only can understand what has happened to me, but I can I can feel solidarity for the people mm. it's happened to. And I can see this as a systemic problem. This is how the DOE deals with teachers who, who try to prioritize their mental, the mental health of their, their students. And thank God for those teachers. 
but instead of dealing with it, the DOE punches down on them. Yeah. You know what I mean? So that's, yeah. that's what oh, I, I call <laughs> reckoning. That's what I call reckoning. And the, so the good news is help. It really does help to understand it, um, to get through the, into that reckoning of, for yourself and on behalf of others. The bad news is it doesn't mean your shame goes away. I never claimed that. I never claimed that. But I do claim that because you've gone through this, you'll be able to recognize this kind of institutional punching down shame um, inherent in a system. And you'll be able to be like, next time I'm in charge of designing a system, I'm not going to design it like that. Yeah. And that's I, really, that's really a thing. You can really avoid that. I could, I could not agree more in terms of my ability to see, I mean, I have these conversations with people and I'm using this word anarchist and then they're just like, yeah, but I mean, you know, what you going to do? And I was like, whatever, whatever, is the opposite of what was done to me. You know, I see it in ways that other people simply could not see it, cannot see it because they did not experience and not many people have had the chance that you had to talk to all these people who have uh, experienced it. And then some of them don't have the empathy to, I mean, besides your own experiences, some of them would not have the empathy to, to, to see it and feel it and recognize it the way the way you have. Although I would argue that empathy is probably trained out of them by the same sort of institutions that, uh, that, that perpetuate. In fact, yeah. I mean, thanks for bringing up that notion of empathy. Cause like empathy isn't what I'm asking for. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause to your point, like empathy is a weird, inconsistent, problematic emotion. Um, my favorite example of this is like, there's this guy who wrote the war on kindness and it's about really empathy and how empathy mm-hmm. can be fostered and you can practice empathy and get better at it, whatever. But he points out that like cops empathize with bad cops. Yeah. Because they're like my brothers. They do not empathize with the victims of bad cops as much as they emphasize, empathize with bad, their bad cop friends. So empathy doesn't really mean you're, you have a notion of fairness. It means basically that you have loyalty to people like you. Yeah. Usually. And you, and I don't want to suggest, I don't want to suggest that I think empathy is, is, is the answer, you know, war, war yeah. on bad institutions of power is the answer. But one way that you can get people to recognize that is if they can empathize with, you know, with a group of people or a person that they don't normally empathize with. But I would never suggest, I mean, you see these people who say, oh, we just need them to read novels or watch movies so they understand the plight of the other. Believe me, I'm very pessimistic about that sort of empathetic journey. And we'll we'll emerge from that Netflix show about how hard it is to be a, a maid and like all of a sudden, you know, there'll be a new Occupy Wall Street. It is not my belief as, as an English professor that art works that way and empathy wor- works that way. I mean, and, and by the way, like that's not to say they, they shouldn't read novels and they shouldn't try to empathize with the other. I honestly think that is a great idea. I agree. But it's not the answer. The and answer to the answer systemic to punching yes. down shame is to build institutions that, that do not have dignity violations. So that's a, more like a principled approach rather than being like let's empathize with every victim of our ridiculous bullshit culture because that's not going to work we're not going to be around to have that empathy we have to set it up so that it's not inherently shaming absolutely absolutely i I could not agree more and you're absolutely right that empathy can (laughs) empathy can flow can flow anywhere and it can flow upwards in an absolutely in an absolutely tragic way 
Can you do you remember when like Roger Ailes got kicked out of Fox News <laughs> and like Donald Trump like really felt for him? Yes. He really did. I was like, what? <laughs> I didn't know Donald Trump had that bone in his body, but he yeah. did. Like every time some really nasty guy got in trouble for assaulting women, there was Donald Trump being like, that was a good guy. It's really it sad like, to oh, see, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. If if, if empathy, empathy is you works. Know, the imagining of being of understanding someone else and feeling what they are feeling. <laughs> Donald Trump could feel could feel that in a way. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you do you do see this. You, you do see this all the time. Um, I so my my dog is barking, so I guess that will be on the podcast. I believe this is the first That's time fine. he's been on the podcast. So welcome to 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 Dashel the. 10 year old husky uh mix so um oh, my dog's a husky mix too he's a popsky. yeah much much fluffier much Very fluffier than, than mine my dog does not have the huffy huffy husky overcoat but he has a husky undercoat so he doesn't look like a husky and then he sheds soft husky fur over oh my God. over everything it's amazing um let me get back to why why I am, was so desperate for a book like this. And I'm, you know, looking for other books like this. There's one coming out uh, called Elite Capture, which I'm also very interested in because we've been having this, this debate for 10, 15 years now. I don't know, this debate about cancel culture and whatever you want to call it. And, mm-hmm. you know, people are arguing about whether to even call it cancel culture Excuse me. And I hate, uh, I guess I'll go ahead and say that, that deep breath is a nervous tick that I picked up after I, after I got shamed and I normally try and hide it on the podcast, but I guess I'll say that's, that's what's happening listeners. That's me. Mm. That's me doubting myself and feeling bad. Um, so there it is. You've heard it. Uh, Mm. and, and I, I have basically hated all of the arguments about cancel culture because they, the, the option seems to be like, you know, either you are for online pileups, no matter who they are against or what the purpose of them is, right? or you are for whatever entrenched bad people and bad systems exist in the world. And someone who is against both entrenched bad systems, but also against, I think, most online pileups. And it's hard to imagine an online pileup that has been productively against a a system for me. Uh, I, I wanted a new way to think about this. And your book about shame and punching up and punching down has really unlocked this for me and I'm going to be using it. I do have one. Here's, here's my one complaint though. Sure. I find the term punching up to be completely, uh, completely soiled by the cancel culture wars, right? So that when, a, when someone is uh, being attacked, that person, it's always described as punching up, right? Like if there's a pile on uh, the, the the example in your book um, of the the famous example of the black bird watcher, I wrote his name down, Christian Cooper. Is that right? Who, yep. um, mm-hmm. you know, got got Karen'd um, by a white woman. And Karen is, I just find one of the most offensive, sexist, misogynist terms and cannot abide it either. Um, and everyone piled on this, this this woman who admittedly did a bad thing, but I, I am sure they described it as punching up, Kathy. They were like, "Yeah, we're we're striking a blow against racism," and that and that 
So that language, I completely agree with you about what punching up should be. I myself, if I had written this book, would yeah. not have chosen the word punching up because I feel like it's already associated with a, a lack of understanding of the shame. Industry. Yeah, no. And listen, I, I was very, very happy to have the opportunity to, to put in that section on, on cancel culture because of exactly what you're saying. I thought the conversation was just bad. Yeah. I thought the, the terms were bad. Um, the choices were bad. Yes. Um, you look like an asshole no matter what. Yes. If you, you made whatever options you were making. Um, and I think punching up is being misused. So I'd like to try to take, take it, it over. Yeah. yeah. I think p- punching up is the right term to apply here. Uh, and I think of it more of a, a term from comedy, actually, like punching <laughs> yes. down humor and punching up humor. That makes a lot of sense to me. That's where I took it originally. But, you know, you, you could say I'm punching up and I, and I would say, oh, why do you say that? Because like from my perspective, the person who you're punching, you're punching up shaming should be around for you to see whether they improve. Like, and you're not giving that to mm-hmm. Amy Cooper, the bird watching Karen, um, you know, she, and, and also you're actually not aiming high enough. I mean, that's yes. really the point. Like, <laughs> yes. like, excuse me, is it, is it this particular white woman's um, act of find, uh, having the state um, state like, you know, system in their, in her back pocket in the form of her cell phone that she could just call on the police to dependably um, take her side yeah. against a black man. Like, is that her on her or is that on our society that we have built a police force that does that? Absolutely. If we want to punch up at this problem, then like Amy Cooper's already been punished enough. What we need to do is talk about how the police deal with black men or, 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 or how they un- unreasonably punish black men. And that's, yeah. that's the system. That's the punching up. This is not punching up. Uh, so I, I do try to be very careful about what it looks like when it, when punching up is really happening rather than what it feels like performatively when you do, when you say something, when you get outraged and performatively shame somebody and get retweeted, that might feel good, but if you're not solving an actual systemic problem, then stop. In fact, you're joining in. You're joining in the shame machine. You uh, know, in a, in a you way are, that is yeah. not helping anyone. And I'd, I'd argue you're working for Twitter. You're working yes. for Facebook. Yes. That's what you're doing. You're you're like, oh, the social media giants don't have enough money. I'm gonna I'm gonna <laughs> give them more money. Like that's what you're doing. Besides the fact that the villain in that story emerges as a woman who called the cops and not the cops themselves. So you're working for the police, and you are working uh, for the for the tech giants. And yes, you're, I couldn't agree more with you. The only, my only concern is whether you're gonna be able to get traction with, with, with changing people's understanding of punching up or rather you're right, punching up is a great I'm gonna make that, them investigate. I'm hoping to make yes. them investigate. But when they say that, I'm like, oh, is that really punching up? That's what I want them to do. Because really the, it, the point, the emphasis isn't on the phrase punching up, the emphasis is on the phrase choice of voice. Like the, those are the principles. Yes. Like, does this person have the choice to, to change their behavior? Does this person have voice in the sense of, can they defend themselves? Are they gonna be have a good ongoing way of doing so and of changing their behavior for the better and being seen to be do, do, do so? 
I mean, that's that's the beauty of the police, right? And by the way, I should mention that I don't think the police behaved badly when they finally got uh, called to Christian Cooper. I no, they, they didn't actually. Like, in in that instance, in that, in that instance, instance, they did not. But the point is that, like, if I guess the larger point is that, like, we're not getting rid of the police. Like, if if in fifteen years we're like, hey, you know what, Karens don't exist anymore because when white women call and accuse black people of of existing, the police <laughs> don't overreact. You know what I mean? Like, if that if the underlying system mm -hmm. stopped being so horrible, then this would just disappear. Yes, I agree. The other, the, the next thing I want to point out from your book is that, you know, I was telling a friend of mine uh, who teaches weapons of math destruction also about this new book. And I said, you know, her argument in the new book is essentially that, you know, Twitter pylons and uh, the like fashion magazines telling moms how to lose weight uh, at the grocery store are all part of the same industry. So as much as we've been talking about, you know, I, I brought up cancel culture and we've been talking about the meritocracy, which in some ways the meritocracy underlines all of this. The system that you have described, and I am convinced by your description, is in fact the way everything is running. It, it's not capitalism. It's almost like a shame economy. Everything you are mm. buying or or doing. I mean, I'll give you a ridiculous example. I, you know, read a, an essay by this writer I really like named Brian Phillips advocating for not the Criterion Channel, but the previous version, Filmstruck, before it became the Criterion Channel. And he said, why aren't you watching this? I know why. You're watching things on Netflix so that you can be part of the conversation because you don't want to feel left out. And I read that and I realized it was true. I was ashamed that I hadn't seen Breaking Bad and I was watching Breaking Bad and I liked Breaking Bad, but I was ashamed of that. And I would have, you know, rather, but he recommended the Zatoichi movies, which I'd never seen. And I got the service and I've watched almost all of them and they're wonderful. And I like them better than Breaking Bad, but I was literally making my streaming choices based on the shame in industry and God in academics. Oh, have you read such and such book? No, I haven't. The shame that descends upon you when you yes, say you yes. haven't read such and such book. So it's not, it's not cancel culture and Twitter and Tumblr. These are just instantiations and new ways that the, the shame industry, which is some terrible amalgamation of industrial capitalism, centralized and decentralized media, and this deep seated social thing shame is being weaponized uh, uh, against us. And in that respect, I will, I will be shouting that to the heavens, Kathy. Oh, great. Great. Yeah. I mean, you, I do think capitalism has a lot to do with it. <laughs> just to, just to say, um, like there's a lot of profit to be made from shame, <laughs> as you point out with the weight loss industry, with the wellness industry, with the aging industry, you know, there's just so many sources of profit um, new and old like the, the social media companies are the newest, you know, as you say, instantiation mm -hmm. of how to profit from shame instead of shaming us directly and saying, pay us for this product to, uh, to fix yourself, which of course secretly doesn't work. And then we'll blame <laughs> you when it doesn't work. Um, it's like, no, we're going to just set up the perfect platform for you guys to shame each other and make us money while you do so. Yeah. So it's, it's a new model. Uh, new business model in the shame industrial complex, but yeah, you're right. It's just there. It's the shame economy. It's a big deal. I guess the way, here's one way that I think it is not capitalism, because as you point out multiple times, insofar as capitalism is defined as 
as the pursuit of profit. As you point out multiple times in the book, something like, uh, you know, something like the meritocracy, which throws most human beings out of the chance to get access to education and resources is actually very unprofitable in the long run. All of the rules we have about making people uh, work if they want to get welfare, prisons themselves, these cost a lot more money than they save. So one argument is just that the people don't understand the, the, the financiers that run our society have not crunched the numbers correctly. As someone who crunches numbers for the financiers, I guess you can, you can give me that answer. But my theory is they're just so much more interested in power than they are profit. And if capitalism is the pure pursuit of profit, the shame economy helps us understand. One of the great mysteries of capitalism is why do powerful people so frequently pursue unprofitable things. And, you know, Graeber's answer is essentially it, it, it solidifies their feeling of power over others. And I think we can combine that with your sense that it keeps the shame off of them on somewhere else. And so, th yes, they want to make profit off of shame, but they also want like a positive shame balance. They want net shame and they will sacrifice or, or net negative shame, however you want to put it. And they will sacrifice some actual goddamn money. They will have a 10 foot shorter yacht if it means that they can feel less shame in their life. And capitalism would say, no, no, no. All they want is the yacht. But that turns out not to be true. Okay. I, 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 I accept that point. Um, I think of power as a type of currency sure. so yes it uh, but it's the same it comes down to the same thing and and by the way i mean i had a motivating question when i started my math babe blog before you know and I, right that was before i started i joined occupy that was before weapons of math destruction that was before the shame machine the motivating question which still obsesses me is why do we and i was about i think it was about ferguson but it could have been a, even before ferguson it was like why do we put people in prison or jail anyway um, for small fines <laughs> that they owe when the actual cost of keeping them in jail is like 10 times larger. And I, I as a mathematician, very naive, very <laughs> apolitical mathematician, I was just like, that makes no sense. Um, and, and in that sense, I was sort of thinking like a capitalist, right? Like, oh, yes. if we just understood that that makes no sense, we would stop doing that. And I feel like I finally get it now with the when I've written the shame machine yes. and I have a chapter on punching down shame on poverty, punching down on poor people. And I realized that the currency that we gain from punching down on poor people by putting them in prison, by imprisoning them, by like, this is the final, like final sort of state run um, shaming machine, by the way, like, I really do feel like I, I made a mistake in not just mentioning at some point that the prison industrial complex is the ultimate part of the shame oh. machine in that sense, because it is just rife with dignity violations, just as sort of like, that's the go-to approach. Let's, let's violate people's dignity. Um, if I'd really understood how much people get out of that, like how much, how much we of enjoy, if you will, Absolutely. how much we enjoy yeah. shaming others in order to not deal with our problems as a way, again, as a distraction method, like we, oh, those people are bad. Like those people addicted to crack are bad. So we must be good. Those people who are poor and in prison are bad. So we must be good. Um, that is such a way for us as a society to sort of 
deal with our cognitive dissonance. Mm. <laughs> you know, we're sort of stuck in that second stage of shame when it comes to, you know, uh, when it comes to money, when it comes to poverty. So we want to, we want to, the, the, the way we deal with it, instead of actually getting into the reckoning part of saying, oh, wait, like money should, you know, we shouldn't let people be that, that poor and that destitute. Instead of getting there, we are just like, well, we're going to deal with our cognitive dissonance by shaming the poorest among us, ultimately yeah. shaming them. I think that's a perfect de- way. Debasing them. Yeah, it's a perfect way of putting it. And it lets you, it does fit with the definition of capitalism as long as you will expand the capital yeah. that people want to be forms of social capital and shame based capital. That's just another form of currency. It's a form of currency. I wonder though, it's as a litmus test for me on that way of thinking about it. Like, when I come to a situation where it's like, it seems anti-capitalist, you know, in terms of the actual raw mo- money, I'm going to be like, wait, is it, is it, is shame the, the other half? You know, if we like yeah. add up the shame, if we like take the sum of the visible, which is the money and the invisible, which is the shame, t- typically is pretty hard to, it's pretty, it's, it's invisible, at least to the naked eye, but it's there. And if you find it, you're like, if I add up these two effects, does it actually make sense? And usually it does. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. And uh, I guess the last thing I'll say is uh, when you watch Star Trek, the next generation, I mean, I think Manu Saadia calls it like a prestige uh, economy or a recognition economy because they don't have money, but they're still it's run. The economy is running on something and he calls it, I think, prestige. But you could also call it shame shame just being the uh the counter about you know bishop uh, not bishop barkley not bishop barkley the uh english philosopher but uh lieutenant barkley the guy who's not very good at his job and they are just broccoli broccoli yes they're just shaming him shaming him constantly because he's not good there's no money but you can still be be the big loser he has lost the currency of reputation um, yeah, yeah, that's a that's that's absolutely true. Um, now, I I will say that though that they do a very good job in that series, in my opinion. Like, I by the way, as an aside, I don't make my kids go to church, but I do make them watch Next Generation. Oh, I know, <laughs> I know, I know that, Kathy. Remember, I've listened to all of your appearances on Slate <laughs> Slate Money. I knew that TNG was going to work as an example. Okay, good, good. Yeah, I do think they do a good job of d- developing different methods of worthiness, different metrics of worthiness beyond like any one particular, like they really do make the case that you could be good at different things. Whereas like, I feel like in the world of like college application, it's just, it all becomes one simple line, a metric, you know, sort of like a a simple number, a ranked list. And that's for the college, you know, U S news and world report college ranking like that. It just becomes one dimensional. Um, yeah. Like so many other things when it comes to shame. Yeah, that's what one of my students said about grades is grades try and take someone's performance into an entire class, which must have so many dimensions. And yeah. it's, it's just the one dimension. And that's the thing that has infiltrated how we are running everything. Okay, um, Kathy, we are running out of time. So uh, in, any last words you would like to have? I'll, I'll give you the last word. Well, I... um. First of all, it was really wonderful to talk to you, Graham. And second of all, like, 
I think the one word of actual advice I have in my book, and again, it's not a self-help book. It's not like how to get rid of your shame because as far as I'm concerned, that's impossible. But the one piece of advice I do have, which was related to the reason you left your job is let's not, let's not, you know, bequeath this stuff to our Mm -hmm. kids. Yeah. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of shame that we, we so foist on our young, on young people. We just don't need to do it. I I gotta say, Kathy, I think I needed to hear that. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. That was wonderful. Like I said, Kathy's new book, The Shame Machine, is the book I have been waiting for about cancel culture, about the new accountability that we are dealing with. We have these new tools like social media, and we have these new forms of shame, internet shame, and we are using them on the wrong people. I ask you to join me and to join Kathy to think about choice and voice. Think about who your next shaming campaign should be against. Don't stop shaming people. Keep shaming people. But aim higher. Remember that you can find me at everydayanarchism.com. That's also where you can sign up for my newsletter or support the show financially. I've also just become an affiliate with bookshop.org, which is somewhere where you can buy books and support independent bookstores. You can also, if you click on the links through my website, buy books and support me. It's another way that you can give back to the show and make sure I can keep making it. I'll, of course, have a link to Kathy's book in the show notes, and I'm putting together all sorts of lists of interesting texts that I've talked about on the show that I will talk about in the future or that I just think you might like to read if you're interested in everyday anarchism. All that's left to say is that the music, which you're about to hear, is by David Hill.